So, Mark. Yes? It is the holiday season. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. It is actually Christmas Day this it episode comes out. It is Christmas today. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Uh, or a weird <laughs> night. <laughs> but I'm assuming a lot of people will have some kind of festivities today, maybe in the, the week to come. And as you know, it's very important to dress for the occasion. Don your ugly Christmas sweaters and your Santa hats. And your finest carnival masks. And your finest carnival masks. Which actually, speaking of the masks, I could have sworn that they were all half masks. I was surprised to see full masks. Yeah, a lot of full masks. Most of them. I think they were all full masks because they all did the weird mask-to-mask kissing. Yeah. Not mask for mask. Yeah, do you have a favorite mask in this movie? Um, I mean, I think the best one is the one with the feather, like, crown. That the woman is wearing. That the woman is wearing, yeah. It is particularly striking, like, on a naked person. It really works best. Like, it's the most visually arresting. I like the one that's a sun. It looks like like a child's drawing of a sun, but done very well. I do also like the creepy, melting, like, founding father mask. <laughs> like the, the pilgrim. Yeah. Yeah. But setting aside those masks, what are your favorite masks from movies? What are the best movie masks? I mean, I think the horror genre has a pretty s- strong lock on the best masks, because the first ones I thought of were Michael Myers mask and the Scream mask. I mean, the Scream mask is kind of unbelievable. The Scream mask took the world by storm. I wore a Scream mask costume one year for Halloween, but the one I had, you could squeeze a little bulb and blood poured down. Oh, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. That was always very upsetting. Yeah, it was not real-looking blood, though, that's for sure. Yeah. Halloween, of course, the Michael Myers mask is great because it is a William Shatner mask. Oh, speaking of masks, there's also the children's Halloween masks that were going to turn them all into bugs from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. I mean, they did turn them all into bugs. Not Did did all of them? Did A it lot work? of them. A lot of them, I know. I couldn't remember if it actually worked. What were they called? Silver Shamrock? Yeah. Happy, happy Halloween, Halloween, there it is. Halloween. Happy, happy Halloween, Silver Shamrock. A more recent thing, a spooky mask I thought of is... I just saw the movie Thanksgiving. How was it? It's okay. You want it to be great. Yeah. I think, honestly, there are a lot of points where it, like, bumps up against turning into a horror comedy, and it's not trying to be that. Hmm. But I feel like that's what I wanted it to be. So maybe I would appreciate it again, knowing that it wasn't going to go that way. But the mask in it is really great, because... It is like a guy who walks around in a big, broad-brimmed pilgrim hat and a plastic mask of John Carver, the, like, governor of Plymouth Colony. I saw the trailer, and it I did like the look. I thought it was very funny. It's a great mask. And Patrick Dempsey is good in the movie. I don't know what accent he's doing, but he's good in it. I just feel like, at this point, if you're gonna do a movie like that, if your killer looks like that, you have to lean into the comedy more. And I get, like... On the other hand, there is a creepiness to the unmoving face, right? That it's totally expressionless because it's fixed. That is scary in its own way. But this is also a movie where, like, people are (laughs) literally ripped apart and, like, their intestines are, like, holding the two parts together. So, like, it is silly looking. We live in a post-scream world, and you have to... It takes a lot of 
I think it takes a lot of work to manage a, like, kind of silly mask in a straight horror film. Meanwhile, our comedies are trying to not be funny. and We have another serious Ghostbusters movie coming out next year. Wait, we do? Yes, we do. I think it's funny. I was looking at the Emmy nominees and, like, the line between comedy and drama just no longer exists. Because, like... Succession and The White Lotus are basically the only two dramas nominated for stuff, and both of them are, to me, also comedies. They need to just embrace the fact that it's runtime-based. It's half-hour show, hour show. Yeah. Because, like, it's so weird to think of The White Lotus as a drama. Yeah, or, like, just, like, with streaming runtimes, just say you're either over or under 40 minutes. Yeah. Huh. Tim, do you have any good masks from movies that you're a fan of? I do, and I actually want to comment. First of all, hello, everybody. I already feel like I have to withdraw that because I haven't been introduced yet. But on the on the mask question, on Halloween specifically, it's funny because I, I read somewhere that they were never able to find the Shatner mask using the original for the subsequent ones. Right, no, they make a new version of it every time. They do kind of play into the fact that masks never looks great. Like in the fourth Halloween movie... Um, which is like an early kind of legacy sequel entry. Michael Myers actually, he escapes again and he steals a Michael Myers mask from a store that is now selling Michael Myers masks as a like novelty item in Haddonfield. Which is, which is so messed up. It's like how in the Scream universe, like the events of past Scream movies become pop culture. Like it's so grisly. Yeah, especially because in, in both those movies, like, it's not something that was 50 years ago that you can eventually, like, it, you you would know the family still in time, right. like, still in living memory, still, yeah. The two masks I do want to bring up, though, are, um, this is a mild James Bond spoiler, Live and Let Die. One of the two main villains is actually revealed to be also the other main villain when he takes off his mask that he is wearing to reveal that, in fact... He is the other villain. I have no memory of this. Oh, you you've seen the movie, but yeah, it's I, I have I've seen Live and Let Die, but it like hasn't stuck with me strongly. Where does Bond go in that one? So it's the one where he goes to, I believe it's it's a it's somewhere in the Caribbean. Okay, yes, this is the voodoo Bond movie. Yeah, so the 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 two Ooh, villains are that like, sounds yes. bad. Okay, I do remember this because this is it's the leader of this like Caribbean country is also a Harlem mob boss. Right, and they're played as, like, the two, like, they're they're in a vertical economic relationship, and one of them is supplying the other, but it turns out it's literally the same guy. And the mob boss, who's, like, a very kind of scarred, odd-looking guy, turns out that everything on his face, he actually has a, he looks a lot like Yafet Kato, actually, and, in fact, the, the <laughs> mob boss, like, he just, it's not a mask. He has a bunch of plaster or clay on his face or something that he takes off to reveal himself to be the guy. But it's funny because he rips it off as he's, it's a funny scene. He's, he's like, explaining his plan, but he doesn't rip it off in, like, a dastardly way. He just kind of, like, It's almost confusing. It. Yeah. And he's, like, dismissing, he's, like, you know, in character as this Harlem kingpin is saying, yeah, you know, that, um... That dictator guy, he's into that weird voodoo stuff or whatever, but then he takes off the mask and reveals he is that guy, so it's weird that he's denigrating, like, his own sincerely held beliefs in the character of the other. Right, it's it's unclear even who he really is. <laughs> yeah. The other character, uh, or the other mask, it's funny you talked about changing masks, is uh, Scary Movie, which, of course, 
I think pretty much just reuses the scream mask. But one of the amusing gags in it is that the mask goes from being kind of the, um, you know, the classic scream mask to, you know, when he's getting attacked, he looks more in pain. When he's uh, laughs at something, you know, I think he, he imbibes in some recreational drugs. He's kind of smiling, does the whizzap with his tongue out. So I don't know. I, I found that uh, amusing, at least, and a, a clever variation on the, as, as we've pointed out, traditionally static masks in horror films. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other examples of like really expressive masks, because there is that one. It's like the white whale that they're constantly chasing with Spider-Man movies is how to make a mask that's as expressive as Spider-Man in the comics, where a lot of times you'll have dynamic eye shapes based on what's going on. I feel like the Tom Holland movies tried to do that by like making it a tech suit. With Goosebumps, the haunted mask, you'd think it would be perfect for that. But at least in the 90s Goosebumps adaptations, they didn't really have the effect. So it just looks like a kid with their mask stuck on their face. I do want to shout out a movie that takes masks to a whole new level, which is uh, the classic film Face Off. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess those are masks. I just think of them as faces. Well, yeah, but in a way, aren't they masks, though? I mean, aren't aren't faces always masks? Yeah. Faces are just masks for the true person underneath. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. It's funny, like, not, you know, the, the marketing campaign, obviously, for this was, like, very steamy. And we joked offline about, you know, making it a Christmas rom-com. But there's another where it's, like, the deliciously mysterious adventures of this one doctor and he'll he's about to find out that masks are more that like just really lean into like as if it's like a masterpiece theater type mystery you want a classic in a world kind of voiceover or at least they're like whatever voice performer did the promos on disney home videos where it was the same guy doing voiceover for all the ads you want like that guy to explain it see i picture a more like maggie smith type um, oh. my cabinet of curiosities type. I mean, I would watch Maggie Smith's cabinet of curiosities <laughs> with an hour long anthology episode of Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Did you watch In a World, Will? Yeah, it's Tim? good. I've seen it twice, I think. Have you seen it? Me? Yeah. Good yeah, it's movie. good. Fred Melamed, Lake Bell. I don't remember how I found it. I think it was just like on Netflix or something. And I had seen um, Wet Hot American Summer and was on the Lake Bell train. I think I saw a trailer for it when I saw the Joss Whedon Much Ado About Nothing. I got double melamedded once in the span of 24 hours. The first one I'm pretty sure was WandaVision. The second was Dragged Across Concrete. So I'm sorry to... Oh! If you haven't seen that one yet, I'm sorry to, you know, spoil... That's probably the biggest spoiler on this episode. You're going to have to put a lot of spoiler tag. Yeah, spoiler alert for Dragged Across Concrete. Honestly, at this point, no disrespect, because I love seeing him every time. But isn't it more of a spoiler when he isn't in the movie? I do want to talk about this week's movie, so I think we should probably dive in. Yeah, I've been trying to think of other masks. The only other one that's really stuck with me is... The Joker henchman masks in The Dark Knight, which I so love and so set the tone for that movie. The, like, goofy little clown masks. I guess we should also mention The Mask. Yeah, I guess there is The Mask. <laughs> no one stopped him, as far as I know. Stopped who, Loki? No, uh, The Mask, somebody stop me. The classic Jim Carrey line from the film The Mask. Of course, I've only seen The Mask once. I have not seen it, but I've seen enough to know. I saw the trailer for The Mask 2 many times, and so that is a little more firmly lodged in my head. I did not know they made a sequel. 
Jim Carrey is not in it. It's Jamie Kennedy. Okay. It's called Son of the Mask. That's what it is. Son of the Mask. I think the mask gets attached to a dog for a while. Yeah, I've never seen it. I also saw the trailer and I've never... I don't think a trailer has ever... Out of all the trailers I've seen in the world, that's probably the movie where I would have paid the most money to not have to sit through the entire movie. Was the plot of the mask just that there's a haunted mask that makes him sexually harass women? Well, it gives him confidence. And there is some crime involved. He works at a bank, so I assume it's bank robbery related, but there is a crime thing that he's thwarting. Yeah, it also gives him powers because the bad guy wants the mask and then the bad guy gets the mask. And I assume that the bad guy would want the power that comes with it. Hmm. I don't know. We're not going to do the mask. We're here to talk about a different movie. movie. Yes. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative Christmas podcast dedicated to uncovering all the mysteries in the shadows, like whether Hollywood romance actually makes any sense. And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, this Merry Christmas Day, we are joined by our great friend Tim to talk about the romance of Stanley Kubrick's final film, Eyes Wide Shut. Good tidings to you all. So, okay. Mark, you had never seen this movie before. I had not, and I knew what general pop culture knows about this movie, which is it stars Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and there is a masked orgy. End of right. list. Yeah, I mean, Eyes Wide Shut is basically shorthand for orgy in our culture these days, right? If you said, like, it was an Eyes Wide Shut situation, a person will take that to be masked orgy. It is a, a specific type of orgy, because you would never describe, like, a Fire Island Pines night as an Eyes Wide Shut situation, unless it is, like, themed Eyes Wide Shut. I like the idea sure. of someone describing something as Eyes Wide Shut type uh, for, like, the Sonata Cafe. Like, what was that piano right. bar? Like, oh, you know, you've seen Eyes Wide Shut, right? It was a lot like that. Right, or just like, it was an Eyes Wide Shut kind of movie. Oh, really? Yeah, like a marital drama. <laughs> Medical drama. A movie in which men are unable to conceptualize that women have sexuality. So not the mask. So not the mask. But, Mark, you had not seen it before, but you are the one who said, like, let's do it. Yeah, so it is now gone and missed, but the, you must remember this, erotic 90s series ended with two episodes about Eyes Wide Shut. And as soon as she said, it takes place around Christmas, I said, well, there we go. We had been searching for a Christmas Day episode. And what better way to spread Christmas cheer than to watch a movie which most people who haven't seen it don't understand. Are we recommending that people listen to this podcast with their families on Christmas just by itself? Or are we recommending that they also watch the movie on Christmas and then listen to this podcast with their families? Well, if they haven't seen the movie, they should, because it's great. And so they should probably watch it with their families and then listen to the podcast with their families. See, I plan today on this very Merry Christmas Day to sit down and uh, show this movie to my eight-month-old nephew. to yeah, really he's got to sure know he, how the world works. Yeah, really make sure he understands what an Eyes Wide Shut party really means, which is mostly comedy. Yeah, I mean, it's just people slow dancing naked to strangers in the night. I can't wait to talk about that scene. Okay, so, Mark, you had not seen this before, but, Tim, I'm pretty sure that you had. And the reason I have that in my head primarily is because the first time I watched this movie, this was my third time seeing Eyes Wide Shut, but the first time I logged it on Letterboxd, 
you texted me and said, is that for the podcast? I will do it. And this was almost two years ago. It's the only time you've ever requested an episode. And so I just had that in my head. Like, whenever it comes to Eyes Wide Shot, we've got to have Tim here. This is, I think, not like the greatest romance of all time, or even the greatest film about romance of all time. It is the greatest meta film about romance. It asks why we have romance, why we have marriage, what these institutions mean, and where we are without them. It also asks the question, why are men terrible? See, what's funny is I, frankly, didn't bother doing a lot of research for this episode because it felt a little superfluous to try to pretend to be the expert on Eyes Wide Shut, a movie that's had a ton of discussion there were just these two you-must-remember-this episodes about it. There was a blank check episode a year ago. But the main thing I did was I read the short story that it's based on, a dream story. And the character in Dream Story, who, uh, his name's Fridolin, becomes the Tom Cruise character, Bill Harford, is just so much dumber than Dr. Bill. That's possible? Yes. Because Fridolin, it's the weird thing of, like, he always believes things are going to turn out great for him. Whereas Bill Harford, like, has this sense of danger, which is probably exaggerated at times, but also, like, leads him to have some caution, maybe? Fridolin, in the story, is constantly assured that things are going great. And if he just, like, kicks down one more door, he will be welcomed into this secret society. Is the book more focused on, like, the secret society orgy aspect of the story? No, it's actually less focused on it. Oh. Uh, which is funny, because the, the orgy is only, like, 20 minutes of the movie. But, like, the movie is a very faithful adaptation of the short story. The biggest differences are, instead of, like, getting homophobic slurs hurled at him, like Tom Cruise does in the movie, it's anti-Semitic ones in the story. It's written in Austria in the 1920s. And then... The wife's dream is, like, much longer and more complicated. And ultimately, in the short story, Fridolin almost comes to see her dream in which she, like, betrays him and has sex with other people and allows him to die as the greater betrayal. Where he is initially upset by this story she tells about, like, yeah, there was this sailor when we were on vacation. I would have given up our life together to be with him even for one night. And, like, that throws him off and leads him on his initial weird night of journeying. But it's when he gets home and she tells him about this dream, which is, like, the longest sequence in the story is her explaining her dream. That's when he's, like, in the narration, he's, like, it's like we were lying next to each other as mortal enemies. And he's, like, now I've got to go and, like, run down all these cases, like, track down the prostitute, find these, like, women who I, like, could have had sex with over the course of the night. Because I'm going to do it to get revenge on my wife for, like, these horrors she committed against me in this dream she had. It's so dumb. <laughs> so that's the thing. We're, like, weirdly now coming back to talk about the movie. Because I read the short story in between watching the movie and us doing this. Now coming back to the movie, I'm like, you know, Bill Harford, good head on his shoulders. He knows what's going on. That's so funny. Because I watched this whole movie and I was like, this is a dumb man. I mean, that's what's funny about it, right? He's a guy who, like... He's a doctor who constantly pulls out his medical license like it's an FBI badge. The funniest doctor. running joke in this film. I think it's it's important that, you know, we never hear him say exactly what he's feeling, either to his wife or to anyone else or an internal monologue or a voiceover. Which is a big difference from the story, which is all in his head. Because of that, we never really know whether he actually feels like like Nicole Kidman, his wife 
has done anything wrong. I, I mean, you can certainly infer that, and he, he seems angry and furious, but there's also the sense that, you know, right or wrong, this is gnawing at me. Like, it could be completely irrational, it could be the basis part of me, but it's it's there, and I have to do something. Harford feels more disoriented to me than anything else. He's so thrown by the idea that his wife occasionally has, like, secret sexual desires that he just, like, does not know how to go forward in his life. It's like his his brain just, like, shuts down. Yeah, that's the sense I get, is he just seems so lost and unable to think normally in a way that really is kind of like a dream where he's not able to make, like, fully rational decisions. It's just he's being led places. It's sort of, it's more, I mean, some of it is about, like, I guess I don't know who my wife is, but, like, a lot of it's I don't know who I am. You know, he said, he was thinking, I'm the, you know, I have the perfect life, I'm a doctor, beautiful wife, we love each other, we never cheat on each other, we have this daughter. Now I know that she is this far more complicated figure that's not quite as, you know, attached to me as I thought. Is it worse if I'm now, you know, just living this perfect chase life on my end, and I feel like in that sense she's not living up to her end of the bargain, or if I degrade myself to her level or, or well below her level to ensure that we're even. I think, to me, it's very clear that in his mind, there's such a different standard for men and women. So her having a sexual fantasy as a woman would be equivalent to him having an affair, almost. Yes. Rather than the equivalent of him, you know, fantasizing about the two hot women at the first party he goes to, it's the same as him hiring a sex worker for the night. Because he's extremely, like, 90s evolution says women are monogamous men should spread their wild oats core yeah well i mean one of the other men we spend a lot of time with this movie literally looks like a cartoon wolf baring his teeth at nicole kidman oh he is he reads like that the looney tunes tuxedo wolf very very strongly this like hungarian mystery gentleman Like, that's what I think of every time I see him. Like, this is a cartoon wolf. He looks like he's going to devour her. What I love about, uh, so his name is San, what's his last name? His first name's Sandor. His last name works great with Sandor to just make him sound like this larger than life, mysterious figure. Sandor Savost. Sandor Savost. It takes Alice about 90 seconds of talking to him to realize that you know, despite his surface level grandeur and and dignity, if you scrape away at him enough, he's just another guy who wants sex, just like her husband. He's he's not really different than him. He's not better. He just speaks a little more eloquently, but he doesn't transcend that basic desire. And that's when he like, you know, essentially the spell breaks for Alice at that moment. And that describes basically every man in the movie, right? It's the same thing with Ziggler. It's the same thing, presumably, with all the men at the orgy. You know, even Nick Nightingale is excited to nudge Bill about, like, the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Like, that's the selling point of this work that he's doing. He's not even like, I'm doing these weird rituals where they're, like, throwing incest around. It's just, these are the hottest ladies on the planet. Poor Mrs. Nick. I mean, as far as we know, he didn't do anything more than ogle the naked women through his poorly tied blindfold. Oh, yeah, that's definitely all he did. I mean, he's not a good guy, but no man in this movie is. In the story, Nightingale, who doesn't have a first name, is this, like, 
really tall Polish Jew who loves playing piano, like, really loudly and aggressively. And he also will, like, normally, when he's doing a non-blindfolded gig, will, like, heckle people at the parties. So, like, when you hire Nightingale, you're going to get, like, some wild music, but at some point you're probably going to throw him out. Which is very different than what we get from Todd Field, who I like a lot in this movie. But it would be funny to see the version of this that has, like, Adam Sandler as Nightingale. Or Rodney Dangerfield. Right. I think the portrayal of Nick in this is just, like, a sleazy but not bad person. No, he's perfectly fine. I like Nightingale. I like Todd Field in this movie. I think someone made... This is not original Tim Lyons, but someone made a funny comment on, like, it would make sense if the cult killed him for what he did, for disclosing their existence to Tom Cruise and giving him, you know, allowing him to be there. And it would make sense if they did nothing. But doing something in between where they just beat him up a little bit and then let him go away (laughs) is so much funnier than either of those extremes. Well, that's the thing is, like, ultimately it comes down to how seriously you take the cult. And frankly, I don't take it that seriously. It just feels like rich people playing dress-up and all the talk of, like, the high stakes of it to me, is just theater. Like, frankly, I don't believe that they are, like, killing people. It just gives them the sense of mystique. It, frankly, is, like, part of how they get off is to pretend that there is all this high drama and import to it. And part of the reason I have to feel this way is because there's choreography to this event. (laughs) The guy's walking around with incense. They've got all these naked masked women doing, like, synchronized kissing with each other. Which means, assuming these people are sex workers, they all have to be hired another time to go to orgy rehearsal. The whole concept of the creepy rich person cult fundamentally doesn't work for the same reason that most conspiracies are untrue. Which is, there's so many people involved that someone would spill the secret. Like, there are so many people in that room. One of the sex workers, one of the rich people will have sold the story. And so it's just like, especially if there was any sort of real power involved in this creepy, like, ceremony, all the more likely to have been widely discussed in the media. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spin this. I'm going to offer two alternatives. So one is that this is legitimately a satanic cult, right? They have supernatural okay. powers. The women are compelled by some higher or dare I say, lower power to immediately know what to do, either by the red cloak or by some supernatural force or entity outside of red cloak. I mean, the you know support is obviously the, the music playing backwards, the incantations, the fact that they're able to know who he is immediately, the fact that they are able to make it into his house and out, presumably if we infer that they left the mask and not Alice leaving the mask on the bed at the end. The other side is that this, and this, I I think watching this the second time, definitely moved up quite a few percentage points in the probability, is that everything we see in the movie, everyone is in on it. Everything is laid out as part of the event. Obviously, Bill doesn't know about it, but they told Nick to tell him to come there. They knew he wasn't going to know the password. They knew he was going to come in a taxi. They knew they could freak him out. I mean, when he walks past the room and Strangers in the Night is playing and he walks in, the crowd gathered around him is not that dissimilar from the crowd gathered around to observe the other events that took place before then. This is just kind of the main event is lording over their power and their 
ability to frighten on someone who is fairly well off, fairly rich. It's not like they they took someone who, you know, is without power in the ordinary sense. But that kind of person might give up too easily. Right? Bill feels like he should belong in this space. I I think he's not at that level. I agree. I don't know that he agrees. Oh, yeah. But that's that's the point is like he's just below that level or maybe he's not, but he he can plausibly think that he is at that level. And they enjoy just stamping him out like an ant, psychologically. See, that is what I think is going on. I think his whole presence there is a game by this group of people who are pretty tame but like playing weird games. This time, I was really struck by the fact that Bill Harford and Nick Nightingale just get to talk for like a couple of seconds before somebody goes and pulls Nightingale away. And this time, I was like, oh, he's like telling Nick to set this thing up. That now, that's the, the first domino that gets knocked over is the fact that they're like, oh, this is a way we can, like, get a guy in and really spook him tomorrow night. Because, ultimately, that's the only thing that makes any sense. This is not a movie that believes that, like, magical cults are taking place. This is certainly not a movie that's, like, revealing the dark secrets of the world, because it's a movie that thinks people are mostly, like, kind of dumb and horny, and you just have to figure out how to live with that. And so, yeah, the people who are the elites in society are also dumb and horny, and just, like, lording over their ability to do that in a different way. Me watching Sidney Pollack, who I think is great in this movie, as Ziggler, in that final long dialogue scene, where in theory everything is laid out of what had happened, this time I really got the sense that he was just making it up as he went along, just trying to hit on whatever would ultimately satisfy Bill so everyone could move on into their lives. Ultimately, like, it's fun to talk about, but this is absolutely a movie where there's no answer. And right. it's not about what the answer is. It's not about the cult. It's not about what's beneath the surface of elite society. It's about, like, asking the question itself. Bill Harford is, eventually realizes, I mean, through, throughout the movie, he's plagued with the question of what's going on with the cult and what's going on with his marriage are parallel. With the cult, the question is, you know, what's worse? This omnipresent, all-seeing cult controls everything around you, kills people without consequences, is trafficking or sacrificing an innocent woman, or or it's a bunch of rich weirdos who dress up once in a while and hire prostitutes and a down-in-his-luck piano guy to play spooky sounds on a Casio. It's like, ultimately, at some point, either it is just sex and money and power all the way down, or it isn't. Like, basically, what he realizes from Ziegler's conversation, and half because of what Ziegler intends and half because of the mask afterward is essentially like, I have to stop asking this question. I need to focus on my marriage. I need to focus on my wife and my daughter and the life that I should be happy to have. It's just horniness all the way down. The defining trait of humanity is wanting to bone. And the movie is very funny in getting in that. Literally, the last line in the movie is just Nicole Kidman telling her husband, and, you know, this is part of the narrative of the movie, her husband in the movie and her real-life husband, like, there's something we need to do as quickly as possible Fuck, like, the movie is just like, that's what it's all been about, people. Yeah, it's really just like, people want to have sex. Let's investigate different ways and different opinions on how it should or shouldn't happen. But, you know, what's great about it is that it has all these other ideas about relationships baked into it, and then also just the craft of the whole thing in how it's constructed to create this sort of dreamlike mystery in a way that doesn't need to be solved, as much as people on the internet will try to solve it. Oh, it, it can't be solved, but it also, it's like, even about 
not just sex within the context of Bill and Alice's relationship, because you have the really creepy subplot about the costume shop owner and his daughter, and just, like, investigating all the different moralities associated with sex. And Domino and Sally. And Domino I mean, there's the fact that, the fact that when Bill goes looking for Domino the day after he doesn't have sex with her because his wife calls, she's out, she's just been diagnosed with HIV, and even as he's hearing this information, he's, like, reaching in Sally's coat and, like, feeling her up. He's immediately moved on to the next thing while still being half-focused on the last one. And it's a perfect mirror image of the night before with Domino, who is initiating. She's trying to get him to, I mean, she's not on the offensive, but she's pushing him to do something. He's just standing there. He's awkward. Every step, he feels guilty. She has to initiate the kiss. Whereas with Sally, who is unlike Domino, has not held herself out to be available for this. He's completely infatuated with yeah and that's a case where in the short story this is very active on fridolin's part where he's like i'm gonna get back at my wife for how she treated me in this dream by like today i will have sex with somebody he sounds even worse than bill he's incredibly dumb it's quite funny actually but in a different way than the movie it was just really striking having these things together because So much of the press around Eyes Wide Shut, as it was in production, was about how mysterious it was. And nobody knows what this movie is about. The story that got bandied around for a long time was that it was about, like, psychiatry. And maybe it was, like, married psychiatrists and their weird sex life. And maybe there's somebody who's treating both of them. And there's, like, weird thruple stuff going on. And this movie is a very faithful adaptation of the short story. Did people know it was... About, like, based off this short story? I mean, I didn't go back and look at, like, the variety announcement or whatever. But Kubrick had been attached to this story since the 60s. Basically, like, not long after he made Lolita, someone passed him the story and was like, hey, this might be an interesting thing. And he wanted to do it in the 60s. And his wife asked him not to. He had, like, recently remarried. And she was like, yeah, what about not doing that one right now? I can't imagine being married to Stanley Kubrick. Well, you can imagine it a little bit because the sets for Bill and Alice's apartment are very similar to Stanley Kubrick's apartment in London. Their apartment is very cool. It's great. So he sets that aside and then it's a project he would pick up periodically over the next three decades. So like, I know they did some work on it a little while after Barry Lyndon, after he teamed up with Leon Vitale. But they finally really crack into it in the early 90s after Full Metal Jacket. And so, for the most part, Kubrick's 90s are spent developing Tromnovel, which is the short story, dream story, Napoleon, and AI, artificial intelligence. And ultimately, this is the one that goes. And so, again, like I said, I didn't go back and look at the Variety or Hollywood Reporter pieces or whatever, but anybody who had, like paid much attention to Kubrick over the last several decades would have had the information like this is a thing that that he is working on this story is a thing that's grabbing him and like there were points where he wanted to make it much more of a comedy um he tried to get Steve Martin to do it for a while especially when he was looking at it more in the 80s Kubrick was a huge fan of the jerk he talked about having Woody Allen star in it for a while so again like more of that that comedy angle by the time it was getting close to going he had fixated on this idea of having a real life couple play Bill and Alice. And the other couple he really looked at was 
Alec Baldwin and Kim Basinger, which is a different movie, but also a good one. Yeah, I can see that. Right, Baldwin's a very different type than Tom Cruise, in part just because he's like a foot taller than him. It really is like a part of Bill's character, I think, that he is shorter than his wife. I related to that. I um, I feel like Tom... Tim, your wife is much shorter than you. Uh, my wife, yes, she is. I don't know how much that makes me like or unlike Bill Harford. But what I love is that line late in the film. You're talking about how like Ziegler's totally making it up. And at one point he just blurts out like in a much less phony character than before. Like, look, you're way out of your depth. And I feel like that's why Tom Cruise is perfect here. Like he's just so good at being out of his depth in a way that like, you know, Woody Allen would have been too goofy. Steve Martin's like too much of an everyman. Baldwin, I feel like would have had maybe a little too much of an edge. Tom Cruise is just this like vapid, flashy smile, pretty boy. Like he should be the the perfect poster child to just enjoy a night of like hedonistic debauchery. But yet even he doesn't. Yeah, I mean, the the Martin and Alan ones, I think, would have been a different screenplay that was more explicitly comedic. This movie is funny, though. That oh, was yeah. a surprise to me. It's a great time. I am curious. We have talked about Kubrick on here before, but it was our Shining episode. It was, like, almost six years ago. We were dumber then. So I'm just curious if either of you have thoughts on Kubrick, on this movie, within his filmography, anything like that. This is Kubrick's last movie. He sort of famously in a way that contributed to the mystery of it all, completed his cut of the movie, showed it to Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and the head of Warner Brothers, and then died like three days later. So that very much adds to the mystique of this movie, which already had plenty of it because of its like weird cult, elite, wealthy orgy stuff, the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman of it all. The fact that it's also like the mystery movie of the dead master is a part of it too. But anyway, I just said a bunch of stuff. Uh, what about what do you guys think about Kubrick, about Eyes Wide Shut, all that? I think this is the perfect final film for Kubrick. I think what I what I love about it is it's like in conversation with a lot of Kubrick films, but it also kind of caps them off. Like there's this basic theme running through so many Kubrick films of fate and destiny and free will and human action. You know, whether it's it's the killing or Lolita or Clockwork Orange 2001 the idea of how much does humanity and human beings really have to play in what happens and how much is this written in the stars? Are they fated to, how much did Barry Lyndon really do to get himself to his position? Well, he acquired the style and title of Barry Lyndon. (laughs) Exactly. You know, Lolita, how much is, I think it's pretty clear, but you know, the, the question of being drawn by compulsion versus deliberately choosing to do horrible acts, the killing. How much is it, you know, is life just a well-timed clock that you have to set to the exact minute, to the exact second? The Killing, also a movie about dummies. Yeah, oh, uh, Sterling Hayden would actually be great to play Bill Harford. See, it's funny that you highlight that as like this big theme in Kubrick's work, because I think you're right about it. But to me, one of the things that grabs me in a lot of my favorite Kubrick movies are these systems that don't make any sense People get wrapped up in the importance of them. But at the end of the day, like, humans are kind of dumb. And so, therefore, the systems they create are kind of dumb, too. You know, my favorite Kubricks are Eyes Wide Shut and Dr. Strangelove. Where, in both movies, the deeper you go into the halls of power, the more absurd everything gets. I mean, I think a big takeaway of a lot of Kubrick is uh, the rich and powerful are kind of dumb and make bad decisions. I don't know how that could be your takeaway from Full Metal Jacket. 
<laughs> I have not seen that one, but it's about Vietnam, right? Sure is. Great. Yep. I stand by what I said. Because <laughs> even in like The Shining, the hotel in the past was all about the rich parties. The Overlook Hotel hosted an Eyes Wide Shut party. Absolutely. Like, it's very much a movie that's just like, look at these weird things that rich people do and how they poison even the, you know, quote unquote staff of the hotel. I think The Shining is probably the Kubrick movie I know the most about and have seen the most. The other one we did on this show. Yes. What do we think uh, Jack would have made as a Bill Harford? You know, the uh, the second password, I, uh, I just, I just uh, seem to have forgotten it. I think there is no room for Jack Nicholson in this movie. <laughs> no, because you have to believe that Bill has been faithful to begin with. What do you all think of Harvey Keitel as Victor Ziegler? Because Keitel was cast and then fired from the movie because no one could get along with him. The story of Harvey Keitel. I like... Sidney Pollock because he is very good at being affable and a terrible person. Like, he is someone who is able to put on the show of being just like the nice man welcoming everyone to his party while having a sex worker overdosing in his bathroom upstairs. I mean, I even love the the degree to which, like, his banter with his wife when he welcomes Bill and Alice is, like, so clearly rehearsed. Right. He is so good at putting on the show. And then that carries through to when he, like, gives his whole spiel about the event. It's funny how much we wind up talking about height because, frankly, Harvey Keitel is kind of another smaller guy. And I like how much taller Sidney Pollack is than Tom Cruise. It feels like he is literally talking down to him, right, as he's getting dressed in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. He's like, who is this little man who won't just let me get on to the next thing? What I like about Sidney Pollack is his way of making like the deeply evil just seem kind of banal. In that scene where he's shooting billiards and in the scene where he's in the bathroom. In the bathroom, he makes it seem like um, it's the school nurse's office and a kid got a little sick. In the billiards room, he makes it seem like there was a, you know, a little scuffle at the at the country club or something and he's no longer invited. Just almost this hint of like this evil but like again banal evil like he's got a bit of salt in the earth to him that makes it put on the guys to tom cruise to bill harford that he's actually almost like one of him not one of the elites yeah that's a good way of putting it that's what i was kind of thinking too i think harvey keitel just like isn't nice enough (laughs) (laughs) really that guy have a reputation for being kind of ornery i feel like the ziegler character has to come off as nice Right, there is something charming about him, even as you realize that he is not good. And and part of that is social status, right? We're conditioned to think well of these people. It's just, I think he is honestly cast perfectly. It's great. He's awesome. He's like a rich person that I have met. Maybe not like, I don't know the behind the scenes, but in terms of like him greeting the people at the party, that is someone I've met. Just to like drive this into the ground... The alternative casting is a guy who has played Pontius Pilate, Judas Iscariot, and Satan. I know. (laughs) And also, of course, the FBI agent in National Treasure. (laughs) Worst of all. Or is he he a good guy in that? It's been 20 years. He is a good guy in that. I mean, you could argue that, you know, he's not the worst guy in Last Temptation, even if he is playing Judas. 
All right, I'm trying to think of what else we, sh- we need to get through before we can move on to the romance. Uh, this is, of course, a Christmas movie. We haven't really discussed that. It's a Christmas season movie because our final sequence is when Bill and Alice take their daughter to go pre-shopping for Christmas toys. Basically, she gets to wander around the toy store and point out, like, I hope Santa brings me this. Ah, uh, the days before online shopping. I love the ubiquity of Christmas lights in this film. But part of that, too, what's cool is, like, this movie is almost entirely on set lighting. By which I mean, like, they're not using traditional film lights. They are using the light of the scene. And so what that means is the Christmas lights are also functioning actually to light the sets for the purposes of the cameras. Uh, they really do play into the, like, dreamlike nature of it, too, because they're so, not foggy, what's the word? Like fuzzy almost on screen and you know even just the fact that it's always colored christmas lights right it's never the white christmas lights i mean it reminds you that it's christmas always but it just makes it also look surreal the christmas season is almost like has almost a dreamlike quality to it right it's also kind of a non-time right where it's this period where life is sort of going on but also not even if you have to work During the Christmas season, it's, like, kind of hard to work because so many other people aren't. So you find yourself in this limbo space. Things are sort of real, but they're also unreal. It is time that matters, but also doesn't. And, I mean, there's also just the fact, then, that it is the end of the year, right? It's the transition point from one state to the next. It's also arguably the most, you know, to the extent that the movie's a critique of materialism and hedonism, it is the most materialistic centered on consumer goods of the year and the one place we don't really see christmas lights that could have them is the ballroom at the ritual there is nary a christmas light to be seen decorating that that very large manse they've already got their fill i think that the acknowledgement of uh christ in that space would really alter the feeling (laughs) fair enough I think what we're doing is laying out all the reasons why you would open this movie on July 16th. That was a choice that they made. Which is just strange to me because this is so obviously a Christmas movie to me. It's so Christmassy. And uh, if you wanted to have your movie also be about unrealistic sex, uh, you could have that even without seeing Eyes Wide Shut. Because number two at the box office this weekend was American Pie. What a weird box office. Right? If you're feeling like uh, being devoured by monsters, number three, Lake Placid. I just listened to the How Did This Get Made episode about that because it came out from behind the paywall again. And what a bizarre movie. I just happened to glance at it and I, you know what? Always assumed it was set in Lake Placid. No, it is not. Yeah. But as far as Eyes Wide Shut, it was kind of a complicated release because it was this hotly anticipated movie. It had this huge tabloid engine churning behind it of, okay, what is the movie about? How much of it is the harrowing truth of Tom and Nicole's relationship? How much are we going to see them have unsimulated sex on screen? Which was the thing that basically everyone assumed would happen. Interesting thing. Yes. Weird. Bizarre. I think that was driven a little bit by the movie's marketing. The teaser for Eyes Wide Shut is basically just the sequence of Tom and Nicole in front of the mirror. But, again, this is a very faithful adaptation of the short story in which nobody has sex. It's very important that no one has sex in this movie, besides the orgy. 
there's actually less sex in the short story because the orgy is not an orgy in it. Like, or at least not that he sees. It's just clothed men dancing with naked women doing, like, ballroom dancing. And, like, not like the slow dancing we see in the movie. Like, very acrobatic ballroom dancing. But, like, that's all it is. It's, like, men in period costumes dancing with naked ladies. To the extent that Kubrick wanted the casting to be stunt casting, in a sense, to have this metatextual quality for the audience, I wonder how much of it we've lost 24 years later. Like, we... I never, I was six years old when this movie came out, or five, I have to do the math, but like I, I did not know who Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were, you know, I, I never could have even had a sense of wonder about their relationship, and I don't think in, in 2023, I think with social media and, you know, the rise of influencers and celebrities putting themselves out there and, you know, the availability of access to so much over the internet, I don't think there can be that level of mystique over two mega celebrities like what Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were in 1999 in 2023. No, I definitely think you're right. And like, frankly, that's why tabloids are not doing as well as they used to. Because stars no longer need tabloids to mediate between them and the public. We also live in a world where we saw the Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman divorce. Which I think does color a lot of people watching this. Where frankly, a lot of people now look at this movie and go like, obviously they are like on the cusp of divorce. But in interviews, both of them are like, that was actually one of the best parts of our marriage because we were living in the same place for over a year on this incredibly long shoot where normally as actors, you're separated doing different kinds of stuff. For like 15 months, they were just in London living together. Their kids were there. They'd go to work and then they'd go home. I, I get that, but it is like... I feel like we write our knowledge of the future onto these events, whether yeah. or not they're actually closely tied. But it's also hard not to, because we've all seen the pictures of Nicole Kidman with her divorce papers. Like, so you know how badly it ends. I feel like the other big thing we have to talk about is the fact that we watched the theatrical version of this movie. I know, and I didn't end up finding the non-theatrical version of that scene yet you know it's also good it makes more sense because basically the main difference is when bill walks through the party when it's in full orgy mode in the theatrical version there are basically digital people put in place to block bills and therefore your view of the sex acts taking place and one of them is hayden christensen as anakin skywalker This doesn't make a whole lot of sense because with the camera standing in for Bill, Bill is titillated and curious about all this. He would go out of his way to see. He wouldn't be contented to stand behind these shadowy figures. It also, frankly, is a shame just because it is the sex itself is so strange. Like, having seen the version without the digital doubles, you are just watching people move in incredibly clinical ways, very slowly. And because they're masked, they're doing it totally without emotion. It's, like, very odd in a way that enhances the dreamlike quality of it. But Kubrick had died, and Warner Brothers was determined to release an R-rated movie. Apparently, from everything we know, Kubrick's contract said the movie had to be rated R. And Warner Brothers decided inserting digital bodies in front of the sex acts was the way to get to their R rating. A lot of the critics at the time were, like, furious about this. And, yeah, I do think the movie is better without them, but it's not, like, a movie-ruining thing. 
I agree it's not movie ruining. The thing that took me out of it most was how bad the, like, CGI is. And that was, I mean, famously, Roger Ebert was, like, really mad about this and was like, I refuse to believe Stanley Kubrick signed off on this. Because Warner Brothers' line at the time was that Kubrick's cut that he delivered before he died included these bodies as a way of delivering on his R rating. And Ebert was kind of the leader of the pack saying, no way. Just, it's so apparent which ones are added in and which ones are there for real. We're still a year off from Gladiator when they could revive the dead Oliver Reed. Uh... (laughs) Alright, should we start talking about the romance, though? We probably should. The other fact I just wanted to throw at you in particular, Mark, because I know this is dear to you. We all watched the movie together, and after watching it, we were talking about some of the doppelgangers in the movie. I mentioned that the mysterious woman in the feathered mask is a different actor than Mandy, the woman who overdoses on drugs, even though Sidney Pollack says they're the same person. A thing I came across that I had not known is that Abigail Good, who played the mysterious feathered woman, was dubbed over, and they didn't reveal who had done the dubbing until 2019, but it was Kate Blanchett. It sounds like her. It is her. Like, that makes total sense to me. I think she is by far the most striking person at the Naked Orgy. Like, between oh, yeah. her, her mask, her walk. I mean, she, she has to be. She, she really does, like, capture full focus. Yeah, because she needs to be this this weird, striking figure that you can fixate on. And then you have the moment of her, like, up on the balcony shouting, like, I will redeem him. It's theater, and that's what it is in the context of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, right? It's a theatrical performance, Uh, but it's great. But as you say, Mark, we should probably talk about the romance here, now that we've been going for an hour. Yes. Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points to guide our conversation and keep us on track. Tim, as our guest, will you please take us to point number one? I will, and I will explain how I decided on how to structure this. So I will, I decided to go the more traditional route, and I'm, my five points are from the marriage of our protagonist, Bill Harford, and I guess secondary protagonist, Alice Harford, his wife. But I will note that Bill Harford does kiss or otherwise become affectionate with five women in this movie. So I could have done a point for each one, but I'll give them an honorable mention. They are Domino. First name unknown, last name unknown. Played by Vanessa Shaw of Hocus Pocus fame. Exactly. Uh, Sally, Domino's roommate. A woman at the orgy who does the mask-on-mask kiss. And then finally, uh, Marion, a woman who has just lost her father uh, moments before. In the short story, he goes back to Marion, and she clearly is like, thank God you've come back to me. I'm in love with you. Let's do it. And he immediately thinks about it again and is like, never mind. And just like walks out after having just walked back in. I think. Oh my God. In the movie, he picks up the phone and her fiance answers instead of her. Yes. And he's clearly disappointed and just hangs up without saying anything. But I think that probably this character, Bill Harford, had he gone through with going over there, I think the exact same thing would have happened. So five points. Uh, Point number one is the party. The first party. the, The clothed party. Now listen, you know we're running a little late. I know. How do I look? Perfect. Is my hair okay? It's great. You're not even looking at it. It's beautiful. You're always beautiful. Did you give Roz the phone and page your numbers? 
Yeah, I put it on the fridge. Oh, huh? Good. All right. I'm ready. So we have uh, husband and wife. Uh, the husband's a doctor, Dr. Bill Harford. Who, by the way, we didn't mention this, but Harford is a portmanteau of Harrison Ford because Stanley Kubrick said he wanted the character to be a Harrison Ford type. It's so strange. He's clearly not a Harrison. He's like, they're both handsome. That's about all that Right. <laughs> That's it. His wife is Alice Harford, a former art collector uh, who is currently unemployed, as she tells uh, Sandor, cool last name, starts with S, at the party. Sandor Zoda Zavost. And the key point for the romance here is just kind of establishing who these two people are. He's a loving husband, a loving father, but definitely absent-minded. Can't remember the babysitter's name 10 seconds after his wife tells him. You know, doesn't even look at his wife when she asks him how she's looking. Is easily taken and almost abducted by two rainbow-seeking models, as they describe themselves. And Alice is clearly... Loves her husband, but is is frustrated by this. Bill Harford is like an everybody loves Raymond character. He is like a sitcom, a useless sitcom husband in the 90s. Ma! Hey, my brother. Just like a good dude, but also useless to keep around. I don't know how you guys interpreted this cut. Early on, she says, I have to go to the bathroom. I'll meet you by the bar. Based on the editing, I interpret her not to go to the bathroom, that she just walked away to get a drink. But I don't I don't know if you also interpreted that or it was just a, we assume it cuts away. I'm going to be honest. I have never thought about it. <laughs> but I guess if you pushed me, I would say I just assumed a decent amount of time had passed because he talks to Nick Nightingale. The next time we see him, he is like basically already in conversation with the two women. So I think there's time for her to get a drink and... Go to the bathroom and, you know. True, but I will say, based on what we see of that conversation, it could have started two seconds before. Yes, but I would also believe it had gone on for longer, because Bill Harford is nothing if not inane. <laughs> so, I guess the, the key point for the, the romance here is that Alice dances with this Hungarian. Which also, at this point, has the sexiness of, like, the Iron Curtain has just fallen. Ah, good point. So these former communist sexy silver foxes are now coming out to hunt. You know, initially she's quite enamored with him. He's charming. He seems to have this this sense of composure that her kind of phony husband does not. I love Victor's art collection. Don't you? Yes. It's wonderful. <laughs> have you ever seen his sculpture gallery? No, I haven't. He has a wonderful collection of Renaissance bronzes. Do you like the period? Mmm, I do. I adore it. The sculpture gallery is upstairs. Would you like to see it? I can show it to you. We won't be gone long. But as soon as he reveals that he, once he propositions her to take her upstairs and uh, become intimate with her, she loses all interest in him. Uh, he becomes kind of 
certainly loses some of that charm as he pushes further and further, but she definitively says, I'm married, and takes leave of him. Nicole Kidman is great in this scene. She's playing drunk so well, where she's, like, trying to maintain her composure and maintain just her will in this scene while also playing being, you imagine, tipsier than she intended. It's the way that she, like, drags out the line deliveries where the individual words are slow, but there are also these spaces between them. Like, she's working to get each one out the way she wants. She is trying her best to be sober and failing. It's great. And that night they go home and they take off their clothes in front of the mirror and they did a bad, bad thing. I guess that's point one point five. Did a bad, bad thing. <laughs> so point two is the fight that occurs soon after that. We should add that uh, to start off this fight, um, or before the fight begins, it starts as a discussion. Uh, Nicole Kidman uh, retrieves some marijuana from the bathroom, behind the mirror in the bathroom. This is actually the next night, right? I assumed it was that night, but I could be wrong. I think it's the next night. Yeah, because he then like goes into work the next day. Ah, uh, you're right. You know, the, the bad, bad thing throws me off. So yes, this is the next day, or the next night. But they are, the, the night is still fresh on their minds. And as they discuss it, she mentions that she was dancing with this gentleman. Bill doesn't seem too bothered by it. And when she says he actually tried to sleep with her, he says something along the lines of, well, that doesn't surprise me at all because you're very attractive. He's like, obviously he tried to sleep with you. You're Nicole Kidman. And a switch flips in Alice Hartford. And she completely turns on Bill and is completely put off by the statement. And he digs his hole deeper by propounding a theory of men and women in which they think differently. Men always have sex on the brain and women do not. Let's say, let's say, for example, you have some gorgeous woman standing in your office, naked, and you're feeling her fucking tits. Now, what I want to know, I want to know, what are you really thinking about when you're squeezing them? Alice, I happen to be a doctor. <gasps> it's all very impersonal, and you know there's always a nurse present. So when you're feeling tits, it's nothing more than just your professionalism. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Sex is the last thing on my mind when I'm with a patient. Now, when she is having her little titty squeezed, do you think she ever has any little fantasies about what handsome Dr. Bill's dicky might be like? Hmm? Come on, I can assure you, sex is the last thing on this fucking hypothetical woman patient's mind. And what makes you so sure? If for no better reason, because she's afraid of what I might find. Okay, okay, so, so, so after you tell her that everything's fine, what then? What then? Uh, I don't know, uh, Alice. Um, what then? Uh, look, women don't, they basically just don't think like that. 
it's so funny because it's so easy to imagine why Bill thinks each statement he is making is perfectly logical. Like, how he winds up in this position makes complete sense. Yeah, I can I can say it has not been on this topic or on maybe such a sensitive topic, but I think we've all been in those conversations where every line you think you are explaining yourself by the previous line and things are going to be okay because you're delivering the remedy, but in fact, you are not. But also the pot is making her aggressive. Yes, I think that's that's the key point there. Kind of the key line is both my takeaway and the you know, take away from where the score kicks in is where she says, um, you're really sure of yourself speaking about how he wouldn't, you know, he's so sure that she wouldn't sleep with anyone. And he says, no, I'm sure of you. Which apparently he shouldn't be. I love this so much too, as a contrast from Tom Cruise had not been in a movie for three years. The last movie he was in was Jerry Maguire. Wow. Quite, quite a shift. But yeah, he, he makes this confident statement, like, I know nothing would ever happen with you. And she's like, we went on vacation, and if that sailor had shown up one more time, I would have run away to have sex with him and left you all behind. What, what she's really describing is, like, not an actual intent. It's just these, like, sort of wild whims that get into your head. Primal urges. And I think the movie would be so much the lesser for it if she didn't follow up that line and say, but at the same time, you were dearer to me than ever. And it's such a such a powerful, I mean, Nicole Kidman delivers it so well. It has so many layers, but I think that the takeaway is that she has worked through these issues with herself, with what she wants out of romance, family, life, marriage, and he has not. And she ends the evening content, or at least there's no reason to think that she's she's not, that she's kind of unburdening herself in some way, but trying to explain to him what he's missing. And he is just thrown 375 degrees to the wind. But even then, like, he is so, it's like wild how much he is just tortured by this. So that for the rest of the movie... You know, unlike the story where you're inside Fridolin's head the whole time, it's a movie, so we don't get Tom Cruise's internal monologue. There's no voiceover or anything. But we do occasionally get these flashes of him imagining his wife being ravaged by this sailor. Like, he just cannot move past the thought of this. And the initial, I'll clue in later, but the initial images he has of this moment are she is the aggressor in the scenario. You know, this this sailor is essentially passive, saying this woman wants me, and I'm happy for that to be the case. And she is essentially driving this fictional dream moment with the sailor, at least in at this point in Dr. Bill's imagination. Anything else before point three? No, I think that's kind of it, right? Around this point, he gets the call. He has to go and see to Marianne and her father. Right. So he, he visits this older... Quite wealthy patient. He mostly has wealthy patients. He makes house calls. Quite, yeah, exactly. Former patient, I guess, uh, is romanced by this man's daughter. We should say at one point, I, I don't, I guess this is point 2.5. Uh, he does call his wife or receive a call from his wife while at the home of a prostitute, which calls him away from the home. He, he realizes he can't go through with it at that point. But point three is going to be when he returns from the party the ritual 
So I will, anything else you want to color in before then? Not in particular. You know, we, I feel like we've had a good chat about the, the orgy, (laughs) a great scene, a very funny scene. Again, I love thinking about the rehearsals for it, right? Like show up the call time for that's like 3 PM. You got to do a dry run. That is definitely the funniest thing to picture about it. They're probably doing it without music because Nick Nightingale has other gigs. Right, and there's no substitute for what he's playing. They just have to hit a record, hit play on the boombox. It is just also so funny that it, like, when he walks in, it's this spooky, spooky music, and then you cut and you see it's Nick Nightingale just playing like pre-recorded sounds on a Casio keyboard. The funniest music in it is "Strangers in the Night." Oh, definitely. Yeah, Nick Nightingale is basically doing like the Derek comedy keyboard kid sketch. But spookier. So point three is Dr. Bill returns home to find that his wife is in bed. She's sleeping. She's laughing about something, cackling about something, and then is distressed by something. He wakes her up and she explains to him that she's been having this dream or nightmare. He was kissing me. And then... Then we were making love. Then there were all these other people around us. Hundreds of them everywhere. Everyone was fucking. And then I... I was fucking other men. So many, I I don't know how many I was with. And I knew you could see me in the arms of all these men, just, just fucking all these men. And I, I wanted to make fun of you. To laugh in your face. <laughs> and so I laughed as loud as I could. But what she describes sounds familiar to this, to what he's just come from, which obviously is going to create a very strong, probably several different emotions in him upon hearing that. One of the ways that the whole thing messes with him in the story, Albertine, the wife, her dream is nothing like Fridolin's experiences, but the password to get into the orgy is Denmark, and Denmark is where they had gone on the vacation where she saw the sailor. Rude. So it's like this different thing that's totally messing with him. So what's interesting is we never really see Dr. Bill's reaction to his wife's confession of her dream. He doesn't say, I'm so sorry you had that dream, or make a joke about it, or say, yeah, whatever. Or, wow, crazy, that thing just happened to me in real life. Yeah. But the fact that it doesn't show it leaving no impression on him, I think, has the implication that it does have some impression on him. And what we see in subsequent ruminations by Dr. Bill on this moment of what his wife and the sailor would have looked like is instead of her being, I guess, the the aggressor or the, the leader in the interaction, it's him, similar to what she recounts in her dream. He actually becomes essentially the one in power in that moment. 
And I think that's probably a mixture of what she said and what he saw the night before and him really having second thoughts about, you know, have I really just witnessed this horrific evil event that really was not what I had even imagined 24 hours before? That's my interpretation, but I'm, I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Yeah, I think more than anything in the movie, a part of what the dream does is reinforce the divide between them. Because, frankly, even as the pot makes her aggressive, (laughs) over and over again in the movie, Alice, frankly, is pretty honest with him about what was happening with the Hungarian man, about this infatuation she had over the summer, about this upsetting dream that she just had. And over and over again, Bill is not. Uh, Bill tries to say that he had no interest in these women that were chatting him up and who, less explicitly than the Hungarian, but clearly were propositioning him. Uh, he tries to like come up with this whole thing about how like he never has any sexual desire for anybody else, but he lies to her from Domino's apartment. He doesn't tell her about his nighttime sojourns. And so part of the divide is just like he is falling deeper and deeper into these lies, which are also lies to himself. Yeah, he's not honest with himself either. Like, he is so lost and detached from reality in his own mind at this time that I don't know if he has fully comprehended his actions either while keeping them a secret. It is impressive how honest Alice is. I mean, even to the point at the end where she's saying like let's not get into the forevers that word frightens me let's just say we're good for a long while yeah which is a lot also yes. <laughs> so i have a point for that arguably is controversial okay so you might think the the final two or three scenes could be split out into different ones i'm going to put those together and i'm going to say point 4 is the scene where he's at home so he goes about his day the many adventures of Bill Harford comes home and his wife is helping their daughter do some math homework. And he goes to the fridge and he gets, I think a beer and he's in the kitchen and he's sipping his beer and he looks at his wife who's helping their, their daughter through this math problem, who she, which she's doing pretty well at. And uh, his wife looks at him and lowers her glasses. And this is kind of one of those famous shots from eyes wide shut that you've seen with Nicole Kidman Her glasses are below her eyes, and she's kind of smiling at Dr. Bill like there's a secret that they're in on together. And I think that's who knows what it means for Dr. Bill. You can interpret it a lot of different ways how he views it. But I think it's clear that this is where he should be. He should stay right where he is instead of going out and doing what he does. He should accept that he has this lovely home, a wife who loves him, a daughter who he's he and his wife are raising very well. He doesn't need anything more than this. He doesn't need to keep scratching and digging and trying to find out what exactly happened last night. And he makes a mistake by continuing to do that. He wants to see where the rainbow ends. Nope. Nowhere good. Uh, We have not mentioned that the glasses you invoked are little Harry Potter glasses. (laughs) Man, product placement was really bad in the late 90s. (laughs) Right. They've actually got the little lightning bolt on them. She looks so good. Yeah, I mean, what's funny is, like, Nicole Kidman's serious actor 
is more a thing of the 2000s. Where in the 90s, she's around, but she is in a lot of, like, sexy supporting roles. She is as much a tabloid figure as anything else. Because at this point, she's been with Tom Cruise for almost 10 years, since Days of Thunder. Was To Die For, like, among what you'd think of Nicole Kidman as at this point? Uh, Definitely. That's 95. So, in between points 4 and 5, he goes about, he goes to a morgue. He goes to, I should say, a coffee shop. It's kind of got an Eyes Wide Shut vibe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Very much. It's like the coffee shop from Eyes Wide Shut. He goes out to dinner by himself. I might be getting some things mixed up here. But finally, he goes to, after a phone call, to the house of Ziegler. And Ziegler tells him, essentially, after trying to offer some explanations for what he's encountered over the last 24, 48 hours, to, you know probably drop this for your own good. There are some some subtle veiled threats in what Ziegler says, and by the time the conversation ends, we presume that Dr. Bill is very close to just letting this whole thing go and dropping it. Uh, but point five begins when he does arrive home and on the marital bed sees a mask, the mask that he wore at the party that he had since lost, lying on the bed perfectly placed next to Nicole Kidman. And did she place it there because she found it when dinging around the house? Or did the cult place it there as a warning to him? We don't know. Interestingly, this is one of those mysteries where the characters obviously know afterward, um, but the audience is left in the dark about it. I think she did it. I think she's had a sense that something kind of weird is going on. She finds this weird mask and is like, all right. But I mean... That's nonetheless strange because then you have her sleeping next to this mask, which is like rested perfectly on the pillow where her husband's face usually goes. I think it was her too. I think she was doing some snooping because he's been acting weird and found this mask and put it there to freak him out. And it, I mean, in a way it works because he then does confess everything. I get the argument, but it's also, it's just a mask. Like if I found one of those walking around my house especially because they have a kid. Like, maybe it's the daughters from kindergarten. They had a class. Maybe they That's had a... That's a creepy mask to have at a kindergarten <laughs> class. But it's not a... Um, I, I do think it's it's ambiguous, and it's the first thing that Dr. Bill knows that we do not. And I think that's almost like our own, as the audience, thing of, look, we can debate this back and forth and say what the evidence is on each side and which thematically makes more sense and which we'd rather believe. But at some point, it's not there in the text. You just got to let it go. At some point, we have to give up our inquiries, which are completely useless, and consider these words a final word. <laughs> yes. And uh, so the, the scene continues with one of my favorite cuts in cinema from uh, Tom Cruise crying and saying, I'll tell you everything um, after seeing the mask and just bawling his eyes out. And then the next scene with a very upset Nicole Kidman uh, smoking in like this, like has not looked, possibly not looked more upset over the course of the film, but it's almost like a mix of upset and frazzled. Like it's like a don't wake me up until I've had my coffee meme. But she clearly is, you know, nonplussed, but also she's she appreciates that he's coming forward and that this is necessary for them to move forward from, from all this nonsense. It's clear that this has gone for like hours, him explaining the whole story of the last couple of days. They're both 
visibly exhausted just by the act of telling the story. And you can see that, like, Dawn is breaking through the windows. Well, he did say he'd tell her everything. And up to this point, the runtime of Eyes Wide Shut has been about two hours. <laughs> it's like two and a half hours. This man also just needs sleep. There were these weird people that didn't look quite real. I couldn't see past them. <laughs> there was a glitch at one point. So the, the final, I guess, part 5C, the final of the three parts of part 5, is they decide to go and take their daughter Christmas shopping. And in walking around the store, they have, which is, you know, like a, what's the name? FAO Schwartz or something similar. Yeah. I mean, none of this movie is on location. Stanley Kubrick was afraid of flying, so it was all shot on sound stages in London. Which was another source of criticism at the time. People were like, this looks nothing like New York. It's obviously fake. I like how fake it is. I think it contributes to the surrealness of it all. It's so funny that it's fake. I actually don't see it as that. I mean, the only thing that's fake about it to me is that there aren't these wide establishing shots. Right. It's basically the same street every time, just dressed differently. But I I lived in Greenwich Village for a year, and I could have sworn that one of the streets that he walks past, I was like... Oh, that's my old apartment building. Yeah, no, it's all it's all in London. And not even, like, in London. So at the store, they discuss with each other, kind of a, what do we do now? Maybe I think we should be grateful. Grateful that we've managed to survive through all of our adventures. Whether they were real or only a dream. Are you... Are you... Am I sure? Um. Oh. Only. Only as sure as I am that the reality of one night, let alone that of a whole lifetime. Can ever be the whole truth. Alice is much more composed at this point than she was before. Dr. Bill is still kind of a wreck. And they basically agree that they have to move forward in their marriage. And uh, move forward not only in a general sense, but also a very specific act that, as Will mentioned before, Alice decides needs to take place. I do love you. And you know, there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible. What's that? Fuck. Blackout curtains directed by Stanley Kubrick. Shostakovich starts blaring. <sighs> what a film. My favorite dumb Eyes Wide Shut conspiracy theory. Because there are conspiracy theories obviously around The Shining in 2001, and Eyes Wide Shut is about shadowy organizations of rich people. My favorite conspiracy theory is that the Illuminati had Kubrick killed because he was going to expose the truth with this movie. 
And that's very funny to me, because the movie came out. Like, it would suggest tremendous incompetence on the part of the Illuminati. This is what I'm telling you. Like, there's too many people involved. You'd think it'd be easier to destroy the real than to kill the Than guy. to kill acclaimed filmmaker Stanley Kubrick. All right. So, do we find the romance believable? I don't know, man. <laughs> like, yes, but no? I believe the romance before the movie and after the movie. But the two days over which this movie takes place are so bizarre and divorced from reality, it's hard to weigh in. I think Alice was once much less wise to the world than she is now and was more like Dr. Bill. And at some point during their marriage, possibly around the time of that trip to Cape Cod, she had an epiphany. And she's kind of been waiting for him to catch up. And what happens during this film at least starts that process for him. And so they can start to continue with their marriage at that point. They're awake now. They're awake now. So, Tim, on a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the least and 10 the most believable, where would you rate Eyes Wide Shut? Just sticking to the marriage of these two individuals, I'm going to say a 7. If we go into the other four, I think it it plummets to like a, uh, what, four ones and a seven is <laughs> 11 divided by, well, let's say a two five. for each. Uh, so four twos and a seven divided by five is a three. So I will say a seven for the main one, a three for the aggregate of love in this universe. Uh, the math sold me. I'm going with a three. (laughs) So my counterpoint is I don't know that all of those trysts are romance, right? Some of it's just commerce and lust. So Um, We've definitely included commerce and lust in our definition of romance on this show before. If we ever do a third name change, we'll call it commerce and lust. That'll be the name of the show. We love the commerce and lust. No, I just meant just on its own. Commerce and lust. Oh, we love the love <laughs> experience. I think Commerce and Lust would have had a better reception from the critics. They would have had a better sense of what they were going in for. Yeah, it's it's wild to me how many critics like reviled this movie. I'm going to split the middle. I agree with Tim that I think the Bill and Alice stuff is pretty strong. I'm going to give this movie like a six. I think, yeah, I think it's maybe a five. You should do whatever you want. I don't know. I'm just like, so... <sighs> One thing is especially weighing on me is um, Bill continuing to, like, flirt with Sally as he's finding out about Domino's HIV diagnosis. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So that really... A weird scene? Especially in the 90s. That really also drops me down. I don't know. I think I'm going to go with a four. All right. While we're on that subject, do you find Bill or Alice dateable? (sighs) Bill, no. I find him to be uh, a it, stupid sorry. man. Would you be persuaded if he showed you his medical license? He's a doctor. I would sleep with Bill, but I would not date Bill. Alice, a maybe. Uh, no to both. I mean, Alice may be far more intelligent than Bill, but there's just landmines all over the place with any conversation. If you say... Yes. You look nice tonight. You know, the best I've ever seen you. Oh, so I didn't look nice last night? And then there's an hour and, you know, you're, I'm, I'm cowering <laughs> in the corner. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a pass. Just keep her off the pot. It makes her aggressive. 
Yeah, I gotta agree with Tim. I'm not dating either of them, but Alice is definitely the stronger option. Because yeah. So dumb. Um, do we think they'll stay together? I kind of think yes. I think so. I think she will never agree to be with him forever, and they will die together. Yeah, I think that's what the ending is about. I think he's scared for the rest of his life to even look at a woman the wrong way. He's he's stepped outside into the, you know, into the cold, I guess, or stepped into the kitchen to see if he could take the heat, and he absolutely could not. I love how different all the places in this movie look. And, like, the Christmas twinkling lights of his adventure and then the daylight of when he follows up on all the locations, right? It's almost a Magic Mike level of just, like, how harsh the daylight is when he returns to these same places. The way that the costume shop and Domino's apartment. Even the hotel. And the hotel and, like, even the house where the orgy took place. Like, they're mundane and all kind of ugly when they had been these twinkling, sexy places the night before. There's no mystery. It's just the ordinary. It is kind of this feel of, like, trying to capture or explain a dream where it just, like, loses meaning the further you go into it. I love how both Dr. Harford's house and and Alice's house and Dr. Harford's office and Domino and Sally's home is just packed with stuff, just crammed. It's clutter. Cluttered, perfect. And and Ziegler's house and the house at the climax of the film are barren. They're sparse. They're they're just empty, basically. Well, there's not actual life there. Yeah. Like the, the clutter is not supposed to look, I think, attractive, but it is at the same time like it is home for these people. Whereas Ziegler and the others, there's a coldness there. There's something missing. Alright, well speaking of making a home, Tim. Whom would you date from Eyes Wide Shut? All right, this is an easy one. Uh, and I made sure to, I kind of shoehorn this one in. The barista. The barista okay. about three quarters of the way through the film. Uh, very friendly, very helpful, not nosy, but knows just the right amount about the cafe next door and about Nick Nightingale and just kind of helps send uh, our hero, Dr. Bill, on his way. So I think by the process of elimination, it's, it's got to be her. I was going to say Bill's nurse, basically for the same reason. She seems helpful. She seems efficient and good at her job. But she doesn't seem too weird about anything. Oh, you stole mine. I was going to go with the nurse also. Um, Tim, when you say the barista, do you mean the diner worker who pours from the coffee pot or the one at the, like, weird cafe? Uh, The diner. Okay. Because I was thinking her too, but then there's also the weird cafe where he orders the cappuccino. Oh, yeah. No, this is uh, Gillespie's. The Gillespie's barista. All right. Uh, So nobody's going with uh, Nick Nightingale or Alan Cumming or Mr. Millich. I'm good. Here's a question. (laughs) Should there be an Eyes Wide Shut musical? So I think overall, no. Obviously, no. I do think you could come up with a list of good numbers for the Broadway musical for this. I was thinking Where the Rainbow Ends would be a perfect, like, tail end. Have that be the opening number and then reprise. But I think a great director in the right theater could cultivate an incredible atmosphere for the two, specifically the ritual scenes. The initial scene in the ballroom with the incense and then the the second password scene at the end of it. So it seems like what you're almost pitching is just like like a musical short that is just the orgy 
Well, no, I don't, not the middle part. Just the part with everyone gathered. I mean, you'd have to have like a hundred extras in this. Right. Everyone gathered in the center and specifically the scene of the confrontation. I think that is the one thing that kind of didn't hit for me the second time because the first time I legitimately did not know what was going to happen. Oh, yeah. I legitimately thought Tom Cruise was in. I mean, I knew he was going to survive till the end of the film, but I legitimately thought Dr. Bill was in mortal danger. And like the tenseness of that scene in a theater setting where you're, you know, actually cast in darkness. It's live. There's always the possibility of improvisation. I think that would be a really neat experience. Yeah, I mean, that's part of part of the fun of that scene is for the people in it. That is also the most unpredictable thing. Because, like, they don't know if he's going to agree to take off his clothes, for example. They're like, how far can we push this? They're like, of the last ten guys that we've gotten to do this, five have gone through with it. So, they probably take bets on it. I was about to say, yeah. Part of the entertainment. But, yeah, no. This should not be a musical. This is so much a movie. It is so much a Kubrick movie that yeah, it's what it should be. All right, I think that does it for Eyes Wide Shut. Thank you, Tim, for joining us to discuss this movie, and a Merry Christmas to you. And a Merry Christmas to you all. Um, Mark, we haven't decided what's next, so I'll drop something in when the time comes. Great. Next week, we are rounding out the year with DreamWorks Animation's Mr. Peabody and Sherman. Does it have romance? We'll find out. We'll also do our top tens for the year. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Eyes Wide Shut? I mean, I'm going to jump the gun on Tim, but like the most important piece of advice this movie has is ladies get horny. Mine is, if you're going to tell your spouse they look attractive, try to avoid doing it in a way that will ultimately ruin the rest of your lives. Yeah. Uh, my advice is, if someone asks you how they look, at least look at them first before responding. All right. Well, there you go. Until next Christmas, I'm a ginger. And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Merry Christmas! Someone, someone, you thought your little heart was gonna break into.